Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge that this work was developed and is presented on the unceded territory of the Muskogee Creek people. I wish to pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome back to the Community Library, a book club and podcast for anyone interested in stories and how and why we tell them. I'm your host, Angowry Rice. I feel like I say this uh, every time we come to the end of another month to discuss our book club pick, but how is it the end of October already? Where did the time go? I don't know, maybe it's just me. This month has been busy and stressful and eventful for reasons which I cannot disclose at this time. (laughs) However, what I can tell you about is how my month of reading has been. Now, because of aforementioned secret things, I haven't had much time to read this month, nor have I really been in the headspace. But in keeping with the Halloween spirit, I have read as many mystery, thriller, gothic, spooky books as I could this month. To begin with, I read Endless Night by Agatha Christie for my Agatha Christie readathon episode. I really enjoyed it. It was a dark and mysterious book and it had a very different tone to her earlier works. But if you want to hear me chat more about my thoughts on that one, plus two other Christie books, then you can listen to that episode, which will, of course, be linked in the show notes and on my blog. I also read a short mystery thriller that wasn't on my TBR this month, and that was The Stepford Wives by Ira Levin, published in 1972. I'm sure you've heard of the film adaptations of the same name. There was one in 1975 and another in 2004. I hadn't seen either film adaptation when I picked up this book, nor did I have any idea what it was about. (laughs) I just recognized the name. And the setup is that a young woman moves to the town of Stepford with her husband and her two young children. There she finds that all the women in town, the Stepford wives as she calls them, are dull and dutiful housewives with no ambitions or hobbies of their own. And the story gets darker and more eerie as our protagonist tries to find out what's really going on. The book is very short, it's only around 125 pages, I read it in two days, and the writing style isn't particularly literary or memorable, it reads a lot like a treatment for a film script, uh, so I can definitely see how it would be successfully adapted into a film. But I must admit, I was underwhelmed. The twist at the end was left open-ended and it was very unsatisfying. And there was nothing much holding the plot together. It was all riding on this reveal. And so when it fell flat for me, it just affected my whole rating of the book. I researched a little more about this book to figure out, you know, if I was missing something. And I read that it was apparently written and marketed as a commentary on the feminist movement in the late 60s and 70s juxtaposing, you know, the idea of the modern feminist woman with the 1950s domestic housewife. But (laughs) the ironic thing was that this book is a critique on the patriarchy, and yet it's still written by a man who describes in detail the shape and size of the female character's breasts. Like, I'm I'm not even kidding. (laughs) 
So even if I read the text as a political commentary with a slice of mystery on the side, it doesn't succeed in that aspect for me either. And it's not only because this male writer focuses heavily on the appearance of the female characters, but also just because the overall commentary is pretty shallow. I do know that I have to acknowledge the context of the 1970s, though, you know, to a modern reader in 2020, these discussions on feminism and double standards are pretty basic. Uh, but I guess in the context of 1972, this was a fresh political take on a psychological thriller. Ultimately, it was a fun, quick read with not much substance and kind of a disappointing ending. I gave it three stars. I'm still looking forward to watching the film adaptation, though. Now, at the time of me recording this episode, I haven't finished this next book I'm going to talk about, but it's one that I should have finished by the end of this month, so I'm going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> and that is Jamaica Inn by Daphne du Maurier, published in 1936. This was the October pick for a book club that I have with a few friends of mine, and I'm about halfway through, so... I really have to get a wriggle on if I want to finish it in time. Jamaica Inn is about an orphaned young woman who goes to live with her uncle and aunt in their home on the Cornish coast. The crumbling and forbidding Jamaica Inn. Daphne du Maurier is an author probably most famous for Rebecca, which uh, actually just got a Netflix adaptation. Um, and if you've read Rebecca or if you've seen the movie, then Jamaica Inn has a very similar setup and style. I am enjoying it so far, but I am waiting for the twist. I'm hoping that not all is going to be as it seems, but I don't know, the more I read, the more I'm convinced that this is just like a series of unfortunate events type book rather than a mystery with a twist. And unfortunately, this has been a bit of a pattern with De Maurier books I've read since Rebecca. Each one that I've read hasn't lived up to it, <laughs> but I've still got half the book to go, so we'll see. And so finally, the last spooky book that I finished reading this month was our book club pick for the podcast, which was The Trap by Melanie Rabe. So when I was choosing a book for the month of October, I wanted to find something that fitted into a particular criteria that I made up for myself. <laughs> I wanted a thriller mystery for October, uh, but one that wasn't too dark. <laughs> uh, I also wanted a book that was preferably written by a woman of color, and also a book that was translated if I could find one. And you'll never guess what, I found the perfect book. The Trap by Melanie Rabe is a 2015 literary thriller originally published in German and translated and published in English in 2016. Here's what Goodreads says. For 11 years, the best-selling author Linda Conrads has mystified fans by never setting foot outside her home. Haunted by the unsolved murder of her younger sister, who she discovered in a pool of blood, and the face of the man she saw fleeing the scene, Linda's hermit existence helps her cope with debilitating anxiety. But the sanctity of her oasis is shattered when she sees her sister's murderer on television. Hobbled by years of isolation, Linda resolves to use the plot of her next novel to lay an irresistible trap for the man. As the plan is set in motion and the past comes rushing back, Linda's memories and her very sanity 
are called into question. Is this man a heartless killer or merely a helpless victim? Now, the first half of this review slash discussion will be spoiler free, and I will warn you when I start spoiling parts of the book so you can skip ahead if you haven't read it and you don't want to be spoiled. But to begin with, I really enjoyed this book. I didn't know what to expect going in. I'm not a huge thriller reader, so I don't have specific things that I like or don't like in a thriller. I'm really just along for the ride. <laughs> I guess the one thing I didn't want was lots of violence and gore, which this book didn't have, thank goodness. It's much more of a literary psychological thriller. Emphasis on the literary aspect. And by that, I mean that this book does something I absolutely love. It has a story within a story. I love books that have a bit of meta commentary on books and writing and stories in general. And a book that I think does this particularly well is The Neverending Story by Michael Ende. Coincidentally, this was also our first book club pick for the podcast. So if you want to go way back, <laughs> then episode number one, we talk about The Neverending Story. But anyway, The Neverending Story begins with a story within a story. But halfway through the book, these stories collide and we're brought into the fantasy world of the book. And I think Ende uses this literary device very successfully because it provides a wider commentary on the art of storytelling itself. In contrast, a book that used this device in a way that I didn't like much was Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell. In Fangirl, our main character is a fanfiction author and chapters of her fanfiction are integrated into the story. And I didn't think this was particularly successful or necessary because it didn't add anything to the story. The story she was telling through her fanfiction was irrelevant to her character arc. Now, the interesting thing about the trap is that on the surface, it appeared to do the same thing as fangirl, but it actually ended up enriching the story in a way I didn't expect. So in the trap, Linda Conrads is writing a thriller novel that details her sister's murder in order to lure the murderer to her. Linda's story is intercut with sections from this fictionalization of the murder and the aftermath. Now, because Linda's novel is supposedly the thinly veiled truth, it's important to our understanding of the characters and their motivations. So in a way, The Trap not only has a story within a story, but it's kind of a dual timeline story. We're following the present day with Linda and also what happened in the past, but through the lens of a fictionalized retelling. And a thing I really appreciated about this story within the story was how the writing style distinguished these two elements. The writing style in Linda's world and story was very different to the thriller novel she had written. And I thought it was very subtle, but also very clever. Another thing that I love about the writing style of this book is that it makes the audience question time and time again, what is the truth? What actually happened? How much can we trust Linda's perspective, whether that's her perspective in the real world or the perspective of her parallel character, Sophie, in her novel? And the writing time and time again tricks you into believing one thing and then another so many times that it just kept me guessing right up until the very end. And I loved that. I think we should talk about the characters too and how integral they are to this story. Because though this book is packaged and marketed as a fast-paced thriller, 
It's also a character-driven drama. Linda Conrad's is a three-dimensional, complex, damaged person. And though she's not totally likable, she is intriguing. I wanted to know her. I wanted to know if she was right, if she was wrong, if I was allowed to sympathize with her or not. So a really important part of Linda's character that's mentioned in the synopsis is that she doesn't leave her house. And it's not explicitly stated that she is agoraphobic, but it's clear that staying inside has been a way that she has coped with the trauma of her sister's death. And Linda talks a lot about the world she has created for herself on the inside. You know, this world that she's lived in for the past 12 years. This book was written and published pre-COVID times, and it was strange to read it now. You know, reading about this woman never leaving her house, it didn't seem shocking or bad. Staying at home has just become such a normalized thing in my brain that reading about it didn't have the same novelty factor that it might have had six months ago. That being said, I really loved how the world of her house versus the outside world was represented. When Linda sees the man she believed murdered her sister on TV, Everything that was constant in her life is disrupted. Everything is called into question. Her memory of what happened that night, her sanity, and also the way she has coped with the trauma by building this inside world for herself. So in questioning the way she has had to live her life for the past 11 years, she remembers all the things she misses from the outside, like cinemas and taxi cabs and ice creams melting onto the pavement on a hot day. And reading these descriptions actually made me quite emotional, even though I'm, I'm not sure if that was the response that the author wanted to get from us in, you know, 2015. I, I just think that these themes have very different connotations when you read them in the context of 2020. As I mentioned before, this book is packaged as a thriller, and it is, but I think it's really at the root of it about a woman coping with trauma. Linda shutting herself up in her house was her initial coping mechanism, but when that comes into question, she has to find a healthier and more sustainable way of dealing with what happened 12 years ago. This is a really cheesy thing that I'm going to say right now, but I loved this book because I came for the thrills, but I stayed for the characters. <laughs> Another important character in this story is Linda's sister, Anna. Now, we never get to meet Anna uh, because in the present day, she has obviously died by the time our story begins. And even in Linda's story, which takes place in the past, uh, it begins, I believe, directly after Anna is discovered killed. So we never get to meet Anna, but she still feels very alive and present. And what I love about the way Anna's character is written is that she's ever-changing our main story is told in first-person perspective from Linda, and her representation of Anna changes depending on how she's feeling. Sometimes Anna is an angel, sometimes she's a devil, sometimes she's a bit of both. Linda's understanding of the truth of who her sister really was is warped by time and emotion. So the audience is, just like Linda, still trying to grasp who Anna really was. There are two other characters I want to talk about, but alas, <laughs> they belong in the spoiler section. So if you haven't read this book and you would like to avoid spoilers, 
please skip ahead to 23 minutes and 6 seconds. I'll give you a little elevator music so you have a second to decide. Okay, so you've decided to listen to the spoilers. Here goes. Anna's murderer turns out to be the man Linda saw at the scene of the crime when she discovered her sister. And this is the very same man she sees on the television 12 years later. Linda was right all along. His name is Victor Lenson, and he was having a secret affair with Linda's sister, Anna. Anna and Lenson had a heated fight in her apartment. He got angry, and it was a crime of passion. So the twist of the book is that there isn't really a twist at all. <laughs> Linda was right all along, and the villain is revealed to us 20% of the way through. But even so, the author keeps us guessing along the way, and it's very clever the way that she does this. A feature of Linda's perspective is that she plays out scenarios in her head, but describes them as if they're actually happening. For example, she describes looking at herself in the bathroom mirror, and her face begins to crack. It cracks and it cracks until it falls off completely and shatters on the bathroom floor, and she's looking at an empty black hole for a face. And so we read this, but it isn't followed up with a, you know, just kidding. <laughs> but of course, we know that it's just a metaphor to illustrate Linda's emotional state. But there are times when these scenarios play out in such detail and for such a long time that there comes a point where we don't know if it's real or not. So there's a whole chapter early on in which Linda invites Victor Lenson to interview her about her new book, which is the trap that she set up. And when he arrives, he leaps across the dining table and strangles her. But it turns out to just be a scenario Linda is playing out in her mind. And then we come back to the present and we discover that Linda hasn't even invited Victor Lenson to her house yet. She's still preparing for that moment. Another example of this is we get a version of the past in which Linda killed her own sister. This is a whole chapter that Linda goes through in such detail, with such sincerity and earnestness, that for a solid 20 pages, I was convinced that she did it. But then the chapter ends with her saying something like, yes, that's how it could have happened. So again, the author has tricked the reader into believing a possible version of the truth. And the reason it feels so real is because Linda herself believes it too. Her perspective isn't concealing anything from us. We, the audience, doubt her sanity just as much as she does. You know, she questions herself, what she thought she saw, what she thought she did. And so therefore, the audience also questions her perspective. Linda is just as much a spectator as we are, trying to piece together all these little parts to see the whole truth. And then when it's finally revealed that she was right all along, it's kind of a relief for the audience to know that our protagonist wasn't the bad guy. And at the same time, it's a relief for Linda as well. So there is no bigger twist to the whole thing. There is no far-fetched explanation that comes out of nowhere. And, you know, part of me wishes that we had had some sort of Agatha Christie-style switcheroo, but... It might have felt really out of place because I think that the ending being expected and exactly what she thought all along is kind of the point. 
Towards the end, Linda actually marvels at the, quote, incredible and awful banality of Lenson's motive. A lover's tiff, a man who is provoked by his mistress and ends up killing her in a fit of rage. Life is often so much less spectacular than fiction, end quote. And I really liked this quote uh, because, of course, I love it when books nod to tropes of fiction, but also because it kind of highlights the reality of this thriller and it capitalizes on the fact that the twist is unexpected because it's expected, (laughs) if that makes sense. I wasn't necessarily shocked by the fact that it turned out to be Lenson in the end, but it was fitting for the story. It made sense. And the ending is also what, for me at least, solidifies this novel as a character drama pretending to be a thriller. We get to know Lenson as a person. And this is why I have to talk about his character in the spoiler section. He isn't a cold-blooded psychopath killer. He is a very desperate yet very violent man. And he convinces the reader and Linda that he's innocent for a large portion of the book, not because he's pretending or lying, but because he actually believes himself to be innocent. He doesn't lie about trying to be a good person. He is genuinely trying. He tried to forget Anna's death. He tried to move on with his life and repent by doing good work and taking care of his daughter. And in that way, I think that's what makes him almost scarier than a purely evil villain because he seems like an ordinary guy on the outside. Another character I have to talk about in this spoiler section is Julian. He is one of the main detectives who works on Anna's case and he had a romantic-ish relationship with Linda, Uh, but most of what we know about Julian is revealed through his character parallel in the novel that Linda has written. Now, we as the audience understand Linda's novel to be the truth of what happened in the past, just with names changed. And so the storyline in Linda's novel with Jonas is really Julian's storyline. I really loved his character. He he was the wholesome storyline to this book, you know, just a little bit of lightness, uh, which was very welcome. (laughs) Towards the end of The Trap, Linda's publisher tells her that the thriller she's written isn't really a thriller, but rather a thinly veiled romance. And I really loved that because I think it's also representative of The Trap as a book as well. Though Julian and Linda's relationship does take a backseat to Linda dealing with her trauma and hunting down Lenson, I think it's the grounding element to this novel. And watching their relationship develop through the perspective of Linda's book was one of my favorite parts of The Trap. Now, I think that's all I have to say in the spoiler section. Cue elevator music. We are now back from the spoiler section. I hope those of you who skipped past it are inclined to pick up the book now and find out what happened for yourselves. In conclusion, I thought this was a great, well-rounded literary thriller. It was fast-paced and intriguing, but also didn't skimp on character development and drama. If you're in the mood for something fast-paced, tense and emotional, then this is for you. Four Stars to the Trap by Melanie Raber. Thank you very much, dear listener, for being patient and waiting a few extra days for this episode to come out. 
I must acknowledge that October has been a bit of a mess in terms of my upload schedule, but I promise that it will all be worth it in the end. <laughs> I have been working on some very special yet very secret projects in the past few weeks, hence why the podcast has taken a bit of a backseat. After this episode, so the last bit of October and the first half of November, I will be taking about a three-week break from podcasting and social media. But do not fear, I will still be reading lots and planning lots of episodes in the meantime, and I will be back. If you want to keep up to date on what's happening with the podcast, when new episodes are coming out and new book club picks, then you can follow this podcast on Instagram at the underscore community underscore library. So until November, please take good care of yourselves, read good books, and happy Halloween. Bye. Thank you.